welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran. Again, this is History, Culture, Trauma. Today, we are going to have a great guest, so I'm so excited that you're joining us. Uh, I am currently the CEO of Paces Connection, and I want to introduce my co-host, Matthew Portell. Hey, I am so excited to be back. Uh, I am. I have just enjoyed all of these conversations uh, through this amazing podcast, and I hope that if you haven't listened to the previous, please do. Um, but as a little introduction, I am Matthew Portell, the Paces Connection Director of Communities and co-host of this podcast. Thanks, Matthew. And just to give some background, again, this podcast really is an examination of how historical trauma, collective trauma, and uh, pretty much our culture of trauma here in America is really driving um, the different things that we see in current times, our social ills, such as child abuse. And so that brings us to our discussion today. Today we have the amazing Dr. Melissa Merrick, and she is uh, the current CEO of Prevent Child Abuse America. And um, we're going to talk with her today uh, as we explore really all of the women um, in the PACES movement. Um, We're highlighting um, the women that are really leaving a legacy in the PACES movement who are really working to address trauma, promote resilience, and um, are really having a lasting impact on the work within the field. So um, thank you again, Dr. Melissa Merrick, for joining us. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Ingrid and Matthew. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you all today. My name is Melissa Merrick. Um, I'm a mom of two kids, and I my training is um, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, have worked in various roles over the year, but over the years. Um, but most recently, before joining this organization, I was um, the senior epidemiologist of the ACEs portfolio and child abuse and neglect prevention activities at the CDC. So I'm just um, thrilled that um, ACEs Connection is now PACEs Connection, and I'm just thrilled to be included in this in this movement and to be honored in this way as sort of a woman, you know, leader in this movement. It's just, um, I'm really humbled and honored to be um, among you all today. Yes, thank you so much. And as you um, brought up, uh, Paces Connection was formerly Aces Connection. And the reason why we changed the name is to bring in uh, an understanding of positive childhood experiences. I know we'll talk more about that as we move forward, but positive childhood experiences has just as much uh, impact, if not more, uh, on uh, our overall uh, development, health and well-being as adversity in our childhood. So um, I'm very interested to dive into that conversation later. I'm going to hand it over to Matthew, and we're going to really dive in and ask you a couple of questions to um, really outline what your legacy is in this movement. So we've had multiple guests on uh, over this last month honoring women. And, and one of the things that we're asking everyone, and we really want to know you, and you gave a little synapse of it, but what is your story and how did you come into to this work? How, how did Obviously, you worked at the CDC, but deeply, how did you come into the work? 
Oh, yeah. I, I came in, into this work many, many moons ago as a college student in uh, West Philadelphia and kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed and thinking about how, you know, what kinds of community services and, and things I was going to kind of dive into and, and really discovered um, foster children, right? The population of foster children in Philadelphia was one that was just, to me, very impactful in my formative years. Um, because, you know, there, you could think, oh, gosh, those those children have so much so many challenges, or those families need some support, like all of our families do, indeed. Um, but instead, I just found so much hope, hope and resilience and joy working with these children. And I didn't know those terms yet. Like I wasn't thinking, oh yeah, these people are so resilient, right? Because obviously they had positive things in addition to adversities. But that kind of got me hooked on kind of the, the potential when we work with children in families, in communities that support their health and well-being, in a society that can help support families to thrive. I think those kinds of um, early themes started for me then and just led me to then go to graduate school. I, I, I kind of um, ch uh, child clinical psychology was my specialty, but I worked with mostly families that, you know, were dealing with different kinds of violence. And really it was on um, during my postdoc fellowship at the University of Miami Medical School um, where I was working in a child protection team and it coincided with me becoming a mom myself and into my clinic entered, a, I think, a nine-month-old baby, um, two young parents. They didn't speak English. They worked many, many jobs. They had no social support. And the baby had a lot of pattern bruising on their body. And it was the first time and only time that I ever cried in session and, and such. But it, what I cried about was gosh, as a system, we failed this family. Like how many different service providers and professionals and sectors had interacted with this family before they were in crisis? Um, and now, of course, they're coming and they're seen in crisis. So it, it, it made me realize that, gosh, we needed to get on the front end. We needed to figure out how could we prioritize prevention. Again, I didn't know really that term yet. Um, but how could we get in front of it, right? And, and even just for my own mental health as a new mom, I realized I couldn't really be on the treatment side for the long term. I needed to figure out how was I going to get in front of it and really um, found myself at the CDC, this wonderful opportunity to learn on the job, like what is public health? It's not like I was trained in public health. Um, but once you learn about public health, I mean, for me, once you, you know, drink the juice, if you will, you can never kind of have a different perspective because public health is what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which all people can be healthy and can thrive. And when you think about that and you really disentangle all those words, again, it's what we as a society do collectively, not one person at a time, one organization, one field. It's all of us together assuring conditions, conditions like the context, context matters. And um, I know as Ingrid and Matthew, you guys know, like context happens way before babies are hurt or families are struggling, right? They happen um, over generations. They happen through our policies and our, our investments or disinvestments in certain communities. So 
you know, really discovering public health and really leading this kind of national effort to to not just study the bad things that happen or the struggles, adversities that happen that can go on and affect our health, our well-being, our prosperity, productivity, all the things, but recognizing that positive experiences too impact you know, generations to come. And so how do we really, in simple terms, how do we have more positive stuff for children and families um, and less, you know, challenging things together? And it takes all of us. Um, so so CDC, I spent 10, almost 10 years there uh, growing my commitment to this area. Um, and now uh, president and CEO of um, the nation's oldest nonprofit dedicated to the primary prevention of abuse and neglect. So at PCA America, we have state chapters all around the country. We have an evidence-based home visiting program called Healthy Families America um, all around the country, helping families upon the you know birth or adoption of a new baby kind of navigate new parenthood. And uh, we also have you know strong policy and advocacy arm, really trying to to educate and advocate for for the context, the socio-political context that can help families to thrive. So uh, PCA America is in our 50th year, I just feel very humbled and honored um, to be at the helm of such an incredible organization that really recognizes that prevention can only happen in partnership. So again, we need all of us in this work. Um, and I feel like once you learn about really the hope, again, back to hope, that's really what draws me to this, to this work. Yeah, you said so much that resonated with me for sure around the social political context. Um, and we were having a mini conversation before the before the podcast where we really talked about uh, thinking through child abuse, not as um, the just the individual level, but really all of the systems that either um, facilitate um, the child abuse crisis that we're in in America um, or um, ignore uh, the, the, the different mechanisms of how child abuse happens mm-hmm. or really just highlight kind of our overall beliefs and values about children that then make child abuse more likely to happen in our society. So I, I do like that you brought in the social political context when it comes to child abuse beyond just oh, we have an individual family who is having problems and um, is, you know, just physically um, uh, abusing their child. So there's also various types of abuse. Uh, And that's really how we kind of see child abuse when we talk about, you know, prevent child abuse. Um, We really think of um, physical abuse, hitting, punching children versus uh, all the other ways that we could... um, engage in abuse. And then another thing that you brought up is something that I struggle with personally, uh, even with the changing of the name. When we changed our name um, to uh, Paces, I was not exactly on board at first. Uh, so I, I, was, I was just really, I'm in general, um, as an individual, a lot of my career has really been focused on adversity. And so I struggle with thinking through positive um, childhood experiences. And I definitely struggle with highlighting them in my work. And so 
I really focus on adversity and I focus on adversity as an indictment on the system. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being able to think through, you know, the solutions is often harder than thinking about what, what the problems are. And so I definitely, anytime we have conversations about positive childhood experiences, I think, oh, I need to do a better job of outlining strengths and um, thinking through what does it mean to, to be solution focused and prevention focused. So you know, thank you for bringing those up. Yeah, I also, you know, it's something that you said struck me because I feel like, you know, as a child abuse and neglect or as and as a ACEs field, we really developed knowing a whole lot about what uh, increased risk, right? So we knew a lot about what increased risk for families, for children, for communities to experience early adversity. And we, we didn't prioritize um, you know, what are those protective factors and relationships and contexts that actually protect, you know, from risk or buffer that risk. And so it is a challenge the whole field has, not just you, Ingrid, in figuring out how do positive childhood experiences fit in here. And certainly adverse childhood experiences, we know through decades and decades of research really do impact our overall health and well-being across the lifespan. They even, you know, child abuse and neglect experiences not only affect the way our brain develops, but the way our endocrine systems, immune systems function, even the way our genes express themselves. So we we know a whole lot about that research, about, about adversity and how important it is and how we have to continue to, to educate people on the, the deleterious impacts, right? And that ACEs are not deterministic, but that we really need to prioritize this good stuff, this pr prevention stuff. But I will say it's true that then sometimes that can, by, by incorporating positive childhood experiences, it can sometimes minimize, um, you know, the impact of adversity and the context um, that, that families experience adversity that can actually, you know, exacerbate their risk. So it is a delicate balance. I will say the funny thing, if I'm being um, honest with you, is when I think about the PACES connection um, now, I always remember it because I think it stands for preventing adverse childhood experiences, which of course it doesn't. It's positive and adverse childhood experiences. But for me, that is where I think we need to be really more directed in the future. This is the, the stuff that, that I hope the next phase of my career and such will really help to, um, again, take that take our movement, our collective movement to the next uh, generation, if you will, to, to say what are the, the relationships and the environments and the policies that we need to get in front of adversity, to really help people start off with the strongest possibility. You know, and again, in the 50th year of this organization that I'm at the helm of, I'm just thinking about, gosh, not only is prevention possible, but we have to celebrate the possibility. You know, when we actually have all this good stuff to help ease the burden and the overload on families, we're more likely to have insert positive health outcome here, you know? So, so yeah, it is a struggle. I think that everybody in this movement is a part of, um, but, but it's so important that we, that we talk about this. Well, and I know that you and I chatted at the at before the show, but um, when we're talking about this movement, we're talking cross sector. We're talking 
healthcare, we're talking faith-based communities, we're talking education, and, and it is no secret I spent the last 15 years in education. And I think a lot of times the conversations I would hear is, oh, the, the kid's home environment, but yet they would come to school and experience abusive experiences, the, the, the culture of, this, of the school or the culture of the classroom or the use of um, exclusionary practices or seclusion and restraint, all of these pieces that play systematically where we all have to get on board. This isn't about parents all of the time, right? This isn't about these gaps of parent, well, parents just don't know because there's rooted systems and education is one of them that uses practices that now I know, and it took years for me to learn, are abusive. So how do you see this cross-sector need Mm -hmm. as not just a prevention, but also we know the impact of those positive Mm -hmm. experiences. So how do you see this cross-sector work happening and, and aligning? Yeah, I think it's a really powerful example that you shared there. And let's be honest, what we do in this country is we blame and shame parents. That's what we do. We think about child abuse and neglect, or we think about ACEs, and we said, oh, gosh, those poor kids over there, right? We other the whole issue, and we say it's those black and brown parents or those teen moms or those uneducated parents, whatever, as opposed to really recognizing that we all have a role to play in keeping children safe and thriving and keeping families strong and strengthened and keeping communities robust and vibrant, right? We, we have to lift up the strengths that exist in every community. And as you said, Matthew, in every setting, right? Children, we know, need safe, stable environments and relationships to thrive. And so, yes, we mean the physical environment, like the home, and the school, certainly, but we also mean the sociopolitical environment. I'm going to keep on going to this sociopolitical place because I just think that, that there are some, you know, challenges and, and, and investments, disinvestments in certain communities that, yeah, mean that a lot of, you know, for, for example, decades of housing discrimination mean that a lot of black and brown families today are less likely to live in neighborhoods with good with good jobs, right? So, so in tr- in terms of the access to opportunity, to economic stability, financial stability, it's different by community based on our investments, our policies, our choices as a nation, right? Over history, and this chronic stress can then lead to a toxic stress response that can flood the body with dangerous levels of stress hormones that makes anger, hostility, depression more likely in some families, right? So. So when we think about the relationship between race and child abuse or neglect, for example, it's really not race, it's racism. It's like what's at the core of, you know, these structural and social determinants of health? What are these root causes? I mean, this is where when you really have that kind of a shift in mindset, that kind of cultural shift to understand, you know, what's at the core, you realize these are not challenges that single families can 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 solve on their own. It requires all of society. Again, back to the public health definition, it requires what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which all people can thrive. So that is all of us. That's usual partners like education 
education, like social service, like direct practitioners, healthcare, you know, social services, but it's also newer partners, business, you know, chambers of commerce, media, you know, what, what, with people with different types of power and different roles, right, joining us in this, in this effort to, to prevent child abuse and neglect and ACEs. So I think, again, it's really powerful to think of the moment we are right now. We, you know, parenting is always challenging, but parenting during a global health pandemic, during a time of acute racial and civil unrest, uh, the, the overburdening of our families is really just too much to bear. It requires all of us to be committed to this work. Yeah, this is uh, a conversation that really talks to how I even got into this work myself. So um, I first started when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and I was working in a juvenile detention center with children 12 to 18. And um, the majority of them were African-American. And in order for them to be there, they had to have committed three felonies, rape or murder. And so this really pushed me into my studies, which was at the time deeply racist and judging parents. So I thought, okay, if, if so many of these children in this situation are African-American, then this is an issue of African-American parenting. And so I started to um, research intergenerational incarceration, uh, which then led me to really move into uh, graduate studies at Vanderbilt that was focused on African-American parenting practices. And that's how I found the ACE study. Uh, I found the ACE study in 2010 while I was doing research on African-American parenting practices and came across the concept of historical trauma and um, trauma and adversity in childhood and intergenerational trauma. And I was at the time very, you know, I, I had a racist worldview with this understanding that black parents must be um, you know, deficient parents. And that's why they were having so many of their children go into the uh, juvenile justice system. And so, um, and, and if I thought that as an African-American woman, then that means that's really what everyone is thinking, that um, these parents are somehow um, more likely or have some type of cultural issues um, that make their children more likely to turn to a life of crime or, you know. And so doing the research helped me to understand so many things because, of course, this is not just about parenting practices. It's also about health outcomes and stress. Uh, and uh, it's tied to structural racism and the allostatic load that goes along with um, dealing or being a person of color in a racist society. Um, and then you add on that the allostatic load of living in poverty um, in a capitalist society. And then you add on to that being a parent that's experiencing judgment or and fearful for your child as a child of color in a racist society. Um, and then you add another layer of just how you deal with conflict based on um, generations of violence being inflicted upon you, not not being the perpetrator, but violence inflicted upon you by the larger society. Uh, and that that violence is normalized. This is how we treat this group in this country um, because they are somehow less than because of the color of their skin. All that culminating into poor outcomes today 
And so that really resonated with me. Um, and I think the social political context is so important because it shades how we see things, how we view the world as individuals. So we need to make sure, you know, just to be aware of how much our beliefs and values are rooted in classism, racism, mm -hmm. um, sexism, and how that plays out in how we raise children and also the environments and conditions that we create for children. And so I think this is um, a conversation that there's a lot there, there in this conversation. Oh, there's a lot. There's a whole lot. And I mean, what, you know, listening to you talk just now, I mean, wowza, there's so much trauma, right? There's so much trauma. So it means that we have to be even more intentional, right, about our policies and our prevention strategies and our norms, right? Our, we need a cultural shift. We need a, a, a narrative shift in this country. It's not a bad parent or a bad mom who maltreats their children. It's, it's that we are all overloaded by trauma and stress and traumatic experiences. And when we're not able to access social and emotional support and concrete supports, right? Economic supports that we know have real um, impact on, on prevention and on, on, on keeping kids safe. It's really, you know, we have to be even more intentional, right? And I think we have to be explicit. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and having these hard, hard conversations because we know that we can change outcomes, right? We, if we really recommit to designing policies that are not, you know, supposed to produce the disparities we observe, right? That's what makes them inequities. It's like we're, the things that we see, the disparities, um, it's because they were intentionally created by some really racist and, and, and um, inequitable policies. So yeah, I think there's a lot of trauma, but there's also a lot of opportunity for healing. Yeah, and I, and so yeah, I'm really good at, at the indictment of the system, and so <laughs> I need to get better with my uh, the narrative that I create around positivity. But I do know for sure that within groups that have experienced historical trauma, there is um, also um, what my uh, friend Dana always tells me, which is who is another employee at Paces Connection, that we have um, historical survivance, that despite all of these things that we've outlined, um, we are still here. Those groups that have experienced historical trauma are still here and, and, and thriving uh, as compared to the past. And so that there there's obviously hope because we continue to be able to move forward, to make gains. And so, um, especially in, this, in the area of parenting. So we're gonna take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about your legacy uh, as we move forward in our, in our program today. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for coming back. Um, Today we're here with Dr. Melissa Merrick, who is the current CEO of uh, Prevent Child Abuse America. Um, In the first segment, we really talked about um, how she came to the work and um, really her her personal narrative and her understanding of the ACES movement, PACES movement. And so I have a couple of more questions for you. First, I'm very interested um, in how you see your legacy in this movement. Um, And you've done a a lot of work, especially with the CDC to really kind of create this legacy. So what is your legacy in this movement look like, Dr. Merrick? Yeah, I love that. I love that question. And and thanks for the kind of question, which is the opportunity to even think about that, right? I think we get so in the work and committed to the work that we're not really thinking what is the leg, like, what do I hope that people learned in part from me and my leadership and my commitment to this area? And I, I guess, for me, it's that prevention is possible is a big one. I think when I was lead when I was the lead scientist for ACEs, um, we had already had like 42 health outcomes that were associated with early adversity, right? There was strong evidence for for these connections um, to leading causes of death. And I will say that I've I've not been at CDC for two and a half years now, and now they're up to 63 health outcomes that they've studied, right? But under my lead. Leadership, I was like, I'm not interested, frankly, in the 43rd, 44th, 45th health outcome, because to me, that's a robust literature. Instead, let this next generation of work be about how do we prevent ACEs in the first place, right? So I think that is always going to be the legacy and what I hope that every part of my journey, of my professional and personal journey and career is helping me get closer to true prevention solutions. Um, Because again, we could reach uh, uh, many, if not all, of our nation's health, 
well-being and prosperity goals if we have healthy kids and, and, and kids that don't experience early adversity, right? And it doesn't mean that early adversity is deterministic. We know that we can mitigate negative health outcomes. We know that, that kids can still thrive despite their early um, adversity. And certainly we know that survivorship and healing is, is such a critical piece always to this movement. But I do think there's way a whole lot more things that we can do to really prioritize keeping kids safe in the first place. And that means caring about their families, no matter what they look like, no matter how much money they have, no matter if they go to my kid's school or live in my neighborhood or across town, right? It's this kind of shared commitment. And we know the science is strong that my kids will do better and thrive if all kids are doing better and thriving. We also know strong evidence that kids are safer with their families than from their families when their families are supported in communities, right? And so as we think about equity, which I think is, I hope, part of all of our legacy in this work, when we think about true equity, for me, an operational you know, definition that we use a lot, even with our own National Board of Directors, is like, do families, do kids, do communities have what they need, when they need it, accessible where they live, delivered by people who they trust and respect and who look like them and feel like them, right? It's, it's like that to me is what I hope my career will always um, keep pushing. So for me, it's really that prevention is possible and that we need everybody in this prevention work. I think that that is also, I, you know, there's, I talk to people every single day that are learning about our area, right, that are not as deep um, in this ACES movement as I'm sure um, your listeners are today. But I feel like when people hear about this work, they hear the evidence, they hear not just the negative health impacts, but also the possibility of when we have more positive childhood experiences, what are the outcomes, right? And and that balance, like we really want more good stuff to offset the, the adversities and traumas that we're all going to experience at some point in our lives, right? But this exacerbation of risk versus how can we exacerbate prevention and health and well-being and thriving? To me, I hope that that is a big part of the legacy that I leave. I'm going to go back to something that we we kind of discussed a little bit before the break. And, and you said something, Dr. Merrick, that that just it just resonated with me, which was the system was designed and is designed right for only a few. That's how it that's how it's designed. So I think that when we operate in that way, we realize that this is a systems change. This isn't just a a family in a certain area change. This is a systematic change. So in an ideal world where Dr. Merrick was the the ruler of that world, what would be the system change that you would be like if we could just start here on this level of this system to understand this, what would it be? Yeah, it's a really powerful question. It's something I think about and work toward every day. And I will say that right now, the child welfare system system is reactionary in nature, right? We wait until families are in crisis for them to be able to access supports and services that could have been offered on the front end and would have kept them out 
of crisis, right? So this transformation to a child and family well-being system, as opposed to a child welfare system, the way that it's determined now, is, is one big systematic shift that would be transformational for millions of children and families. And I'm so excited that uh, PCA America is one of four national partners that are working together um, at the national level to try to call for um, this kind of a child and family well-being system. So PCA America, the U.S. Children's Bureau, that's sort of, you know, child welfare for our nation, um, the Annie E. Casey Foundation and Casey Family Programs, along with um, several lived um, experts, you know, people that have lived expertise in their own communities, having been in our traditional child welfare system. We have partnered with about 22 jurisdictions around the country to really figure out how can we co-create prevention solutions based on the context of the specific community, right? Again, every community has strengths and barriers to some of these um, approaches and prioritization of prevention as opposed to, you know, business as usual, if you will. But learning together, building partners with people and listening with humility to people that have this lived expertise. You know, look, I all of us that have fancy degrees and stuff, we're used to telling people what to do. We see that that doesn't work, right? Like we have no idea what communities need. We need to be listening, lifting up, co-creating prevention solutions with the ultimate goal of really having families have what they need when they need it in their communities in a non-stigmatized way, not just to have to be referred to XYZ service, right? If we Again, if we had concrete supports for families like paid family leave, even every dollar increase in minimum wage uh, reduces child neglect by 10%, right? So like we have evidence-based solutions, policy and other solutions that we can implement to really shift uh, from, again, this reactionary uh, system that we have to a more proactive, holistic approach that ultimately um, we need. We can't, you know, go back to normal business as usual. Like that has not served children and families well. So we have to be bold. We have to, you know, invite and and listen to to all kinds of um, expertise as we really try to design a transformational system that meets families before uh, they're in crisis. Yeah, you bring up a really good um, point around what different communities need. And so this is something that uh, across the country, uh, we're grappling with inside, uh, you know, PACES initiatives and just in general. A good example of this is uh, the the way that schools have responded or parents have responded to the idea that critical race theory is being taught in schools and um, pretty much throwing uh, whole fits in in, in the space. But, um, but this is an equity issue. Um, far too long, we have left out the issue of identity and identity trauma um, when it comes to children. And we have been trying to have this all child um, narrative, it, even so much that we adopt, especially in the PACES movement, 
um, when we are looking at messaging and how we create messaging for for politicians or whoever that we're trying to reach out to around this discussion of race, um, because it's considered polarizing or political, um, that we uh, are saying all children are basically all live mattering <laughs> this movement. Uh, and so um, I think I would love to know what your what your thoughts are. But we definitely need, um, as a as a movement, to grapple with the uh, understanding that we have to talk about identity when we when we talk about different communities, and that not all communities are Eurocentric, um, and not all communities have the same needs. Uh, and if we're going and and if we're going to to tackle race, we have to tackle uh, racial identity development in children and how important it is to prioritize that in our work, even if we think about creating positive childhood experiences for children that are based on um, their experiences in a school or in their neighborhood. It is largely tied to identity in this country because we're so race centered. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you said. I actually, the way my brain kind of conceptualizes this is it's a both and kind of approach, right? We know all children need safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments to really help them thrive, right? And and we know because of identity, because of bias, because of historical trauma, because of, you know, uh, investments and disinvestments, uh, and because of context that some communities and sub-segments of, of the population need more or different or specified or focused, right? I don't use targeted usually because that's too violent, but, you know, need like pointed uh, uh, intervention or, or um, uh, policy and prevention solutions. So I think, I think it's both and. Um, it's similar to kind of how I come to this space around primary prevention. I believe primary prevention is a key um, strategy in terms of like all the things that you need on the front end, but that doesn't mean that secondary or tertiary prevention or trauma-informed systems and supports are not also part of the solution. So when I think about it, I think of a really a comprehensive approach that requires all of the things you said, Ingrid, you know, really specificity um, for certain communities, but a lot of that comes from listening to the communities you know i get a lot of questions like oh dr merrick like who is the one like you know uh champion that i need to partner with in my community i have no idea you know your community right you know who has power who has trust who has built you know rapport um in the community versus you know a, a lot of times people can focus like white people coming into black and brown communities and telling them what to do that's not going to work anywhere you know and a good example is like i this was years ago while I was still at the CDC. Um, uh, Reverend Daryl Armstrong, he's a pastor of a Black Baptist church in Trenton, New Jersey. And he invited me and, and another scientist to give a talk in his congregation around no hit zones, right? No hit zones is basically like sort of a, a norms change approach. It started in children's hospitals. It basically says, we don't do any hitting here. Parents don't hit kids. Kids don't hit adults. Adults don't hit other adults, right? And there's still a lot of um, evidence building in this kind of approach. So basically, we talked to the congregation. They unanimously voted for it to be a no-hit zone, but they said, but we're not going to use that name. 
because we're used to people telling us what not to do. And we want to tell our congregation what we want them to do. Right. So that was they recognized they needed to be strength based and they wanted to have a positive message. And, you know, something like positive parenting zone felt more right. So, again, this is where you could have a strategy. Um, but if you don't listen to the community, if you don't um, co-create the prevention solution for that context, right, um, then it's not going to be as effective. So that's just one example. I think it's both and, and I think you're absolutely right. So I, I you know, I, I think my as myself, as being an educator and a, having to go through the mandated reporter trainings what i what is thinking what i heard you say is we need mandated support before we can mandate report and i think that is the key we we're we're, we're and i think even there it's grounded in judgment and percep- perception and racism and when you have people reporting what they perceive as abuse through a perspective that they don't really understand although yes reporting is important, right? We have to keep kids safe. So I don't want, I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that, but I think priority, it needs to be about support. How do we continue to build support um, so that this doesn't become, uh, that, that abuse isn't an outcome. So what do you think is the next move for this movement as a whole? What do you, what do you see maybe in the next five, 10 years? What, where, where are we going with, with the PACES movement? Yeah, I think you just kind of teed that up perfectly, Matthew. I think that is what we're we're moving toward, right? How do we have um, these these support and services and prevention um, uh, uh, interventions, if you will, available again broadly before families find themselves in crisis? How do we have more professionals, adults, and others that interact with children and families? recognizing, you know, what what can be done to help ease that burden on on parents, right, and meet the needs of the child. So things like family resource centers, you know, that people can go to to access uh, services and supports in a non-stigmatized, non-judgmental way. Things like evidence-based home visitation, right, which we know right now it's up for reauthorization this year, the maternal, infant, and early childhood home visitation legislation. Across like many, uh, 10 or 12 of the of the most highly um, evaluated uh, home visitation um, programs like Healthy Families America, which is the one that we have at Prevent Child Abuse America, but across the leading ones, we're only meeting about three to five percent of the families who could benefit from evidence-based home visitation. This is crazy because we know through decades of research too that that home visitation not only prevents child abuse and neglect reports, it also prevents intimate partner violence or domestic violence. It also leads to improved economic self-sufficiency for families. So from Healthy Families America, HFA moms that are teen moms are seven times more likely to complete a year of college than, than moms that are not in the program, right? Less homelessness, uh, improved maternal health and, and mortality outcomes, like so much robust evidence. And that's just for HFA. Uh, but we're only meeting three to 5% of the families that, that, that can benefit. So I think it's really about, you know, I, I learned this from a tribal leader once and he said, you know, show me your budget and I'll know what your values are. You know, it's like, how do we prioritize the investments that we want? Right. And how can we 
get increased investments for home visitation and other prevention solutions on the front end, right? And then see all of these downstream costs improve, healthcare costs, social service, juvenile justice, like all of it, right? But it's just not how we've always make, made investments. We like to make short-term investments in three to five years. As soon as you have a program up and running, oh, the money goes away. It's not sustainable. We want to make investments under a certain administration so that they get credit for, you know, the. this is a, this is a cultural and generational shift. We need to be investing in a generation of children and families, right? 20-year investments, long-term investments. And then again, across sector, we will see gains and improvements. So I think that that is where the field is have headed, you know, really implementing this comprehensive call for more investments on the front end, assuring the conditions in which all people can thrive, right? It's, it's really a public health approach at its core. And it requires partners, it, it partners in prevention. I cannot underscore that enough. Prevention can only happen in partnership, but it's not just a, a partnership of, across organizations and the usual suspects. It's community partners, youth and family voice uh, uh, across sector, you know, professional and personal uh, connections and partners. It's all of that. So to me, it's really, again, celebrating the possibility and prioritizing the, the possibility of the next generation. I think of a quote Maya Angelou said, we, we know what she said, we do what we know. And when we know better, we do better. And unfortunately, I feel like we know better right now, but we're still unwilling to do better. And that I think is, is why this has to be a collective movement. It's why you are a pioneer in this work. It's why we're having a conversation with prevent child abuse about things like racism, why we're having about community support, about talking about supports and not reports. And it's why we have to have the, this movement and it's why PACES, it's why we do what we do. Um, because I think now there's a large body, a massive body of research that we know better. And so doing better can no longer it can no longer be an option. It has to be what we do. And I think that th these conversations are part of it, right? And then when people listen to this, they share what they've learned, or I share what I've learned from you, Dr. Merrick, or from you, Ingrid, as we move forward. But it's, the change has to happen. Um, and you're right. It has to be a long-term vision, a long-term support and impact. Yeah, and this is where we get back to the indictment of the system. Um, there are real reasons why the work doesn't get done. Um, it's not sure. just by chance. It kind of goes back to what I said before about certain groups being upset about critical race theory, which is not, I want to be very clear in my disclaimer that critical race theory is not being taught in K through 12, but that there's a reason why there is this very clear narrative around wanting to declare mission accomplished on racism um, because um, this absolves a lot of people from being um, put to the task to address it. Uh, so when we think about racism in, in all the different ways that it manifests, um, reparations are old um, and, and equity is needed. And this is not just an issue of just racism. This is the same for sexism. This is the same for classism. And as we um, 
as we address these things that seem to be adult issues, but they're not. These are issues that children are aware of as early as age three. And so we really have to think through where our priorities are and do we prioritize our children? I think America has been very clear over the decades that they do not, they prioritize certain children, but not all children. And so I do wanna give some space to you, Dr. Merrick, to really um, outline what, what your last words are for our audience. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's just coming for me, but it, it just leaves me with like, this rejuvenated commitment that there is work that must be done, right? We cannot, it's not enough that some people are learning for the very first time that there are inequities by race or class or, or whatever, right? These things have existed for generations, right? But at some point we have to do better. The urgency of just being alive in this moment, I guess is what brings me back families, children, communities are suffering, right? And that is in our collective power to change. We need a cultural shift. We need to be having these conversations early and often and over and over, right? I'm a child psychologist. I could tell you it takes 11 presentations of a new food for a child to develop a taste for that food or not, right? So it's the same in our messaging. We need to keep being bold, we need to be consistent in in messaging. But I think this is that childhood adversity is not a family problem, an individual problem. It is a public issue. And so that means that the prevention solutions lie on all of us collectively. We all have a role to play. We all have to take responsibility. So I just encourage everyone to, you know, obviously people that are listening are part of this movement. Share it with your friends. We need more partners in prevention. But I really believe, you know, in the tagline of our organization is we can prevent child abuse in America because we know that childhood lasts a lifetime. Thank you so much, Dr. Merrick, for joining us. And, um, it, you know, this positioning, you're closing us out for this month and moving us into Child Abuse uh, Awareness Month. So thank you for that. And then, you know, as we move forward into the month of April, me and Matthew will be examining child abuse on a large scale and looking at our system or our culture of child abuse here in America. Uh, I want to, um, you know, do our due diligence and think through what it means that we have created a culture where we have extreme child abuse in our country, um, more so than other countries, and how that really is connected to our beliefs, norms, and values about children, to the policies that we create, to the way that our communities look and how they have been created over time. And then of course, what families look like and what the individual interpersonal interactions in families look like. So I wanna thank you for joining us today. Uh, Matthew, do you wanna have any words before we close out? Just thank you as well. And thank you for sharing your expertise, your experience, your thoughts um, and your ideas with us. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to future conversations. Um, I don't feel like this is going to be our last. Yes, thank Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.